your hands off me, you rotten, rusty son of a bitch! Indiana Jones. About time you showed up. Mom! Sweetheart. Mom. Welcome to the Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast, Indiana Jones Retrospective Series. Oh boy, we're pilgrims in an unholy land. Join Garrett. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear, you'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grill already. Matt. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. You will become a true believer. <laughs> and Adam. May we go home now, please? As they go through all the films in the Indiana Jones franchise. The solution presents itself. With the highly anticipated James Mangold-directed Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny coming out this summer. Tickets, please. One by one, the boys will look at the entire evolution of the Harrison Ford starring serial adventures. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. What do the guys expect out of this new film? It's not the years, it's the mileage. What brought powerhouses Steven Spielberg and George Lucas together? Nothing shocks me. Is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull really as bad as its reputation? Somebody's gonna get hurt! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Percolated Media. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Released May 22, 2008. Budget on this was $185 million. Box office $790.7 million. And this is directed by the beard himself, Mr. Steven Spielberg. Well, you know, if we were ever going to do this franchise, I would have thought for sure this would have been the last one we were going to do. Yet, we have another one coming out. We're going to talk about that soon enough by the end of this podcast. But first, let me just introduce my colleagues. First, the one and only Matthew Goudreau. Matt, how are you doing, sir? Doing pretty well. I'm very excited to talk about this movie, as you would expect. Definitely. You kind of built it up in the Raiders podcast, and I've been looking forward to your thoughts ever since. And the gentleman who I have lived this life with, we have done our own archaeological digs together, as far as metaphorically, the one and only Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, daddy-o's. Glad to be here. Daddy-o's, daddy-o's. Oh, so much to talk about with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I remember I was in college in 2008, and I had heard this trailer was online. I checked it out. I was super excited. This and a little movie called The Dark Knight really got me excited for the summer of 2008. Adam, do you remember the lead up to this one, sir? I do, because there was Indiana Jones was not going to be back. I mean, we had the perfect send-off, at least in the final shot with Last Crusade. There was not a hint that we were going to get more Indiana Jones. Uh, at that point, Lucasfilm was not acquired by Disney, so it wasn't like, you know, Disney was going to do its... Mickey Mouse shenanigans of cranking everything out until bleed from a Paramount mountain. So to bring this out 
to have Lucas and Spielberg back, to have Harrison Ford back. I mean, people were excited. It was, it kind of felt like the prequels in a way because you weren't expecting it, but you were getting a new one. Everybody was coming back, and there was genuine excitement to see Indy back in that fedora, back with the whip. And I was one of them. I was absolutely excited and couldn't wait to see this. Yeah, same here. I mean, I, that trailer hit. I watched it countless times. I showed my brother. I showed my dad. I could not believe we were getting another Indiana Jones film. It was euphoric almost to me because the series means so much to me in so many ways. And to see Harrison Ford, by this time he was in the 60s, back in that hat, back with the whip... Oh my god, like, the anticipation was crazy. I was looking forward to this more than The Dark Knight, quite honestly. Matthew Goudreau, you have mentioned that the original series, as you've mentioned every time we've done we've done an Indiana Jones podcast, that you were going through the trajectory of leading up to this particular movie. You go through the movies, or we are to the point where the movie's coming out. Your grandparents ha- were very excited. What about you? Were you excited to go see this? I think I was, if I recall. I sort of would compare this to people who were not into Star Wars when the prequels are coming out, but got caught up in the euphoria and the hype and got assimilated into it like the Borg. That's kind of how I felt. I saw the trailer around the time it was coming out, maybe a few months before, like everybody else. But I I didn't get excited until my family got excited. And this is one of those movies that are few and far between where I, when I say my family went, I mean everybody. Mom, grandparents, siblings, everyone who wanted to go, went. But, I do have to be honest, I was not as hyped for this movie, because Iron Man had come out a few weeks before that, and I saw that three times in the theater. And i got to be honest, that kind of took some of the luster off Indiana Jones. And there was a Bond movie coming out six months after this, mm-hmm. so I jokingly called this the placeholder until we got to Batman and Bond. That was my feeling, and as I walked out of that theater, it's a good thing Twitter wasn't really around at this time, and film discussion was very different, which is crazy 15 years ago than it is now. I would love to know if this movie released now. This was the fourth one after over 30 years. Would the response be as controversial and as immediate as it was. Immediate, yes. But it wasn't until I waited a couple months, maybe even over a year, where I realized that this was not the most popular movie on the on the, uh, on the World Wide Web. Yep, definitely going to get to that. But I also want to mention, too, that 2007 was my very first Comic-Con. And we had the hype of Iron Man. We had the hype of Hellboy 2. We had the hype of a whole bunch of other movies coming out. I mean, I was in the Dark Knight panel when that trailer first released, and you got to hear Heath Ledger as a Joker for the first time in the entire place. I still get chills every time I think about that. But I was also at the panel for this. And Spielberg and Ford and Karen Allen, they weren't there, but they released a video that they showed at that time talking about how excited they were for this, how excited Ford was to be back. And that whole place was, the the buzz was also big over there too. So this being my first Comic-Con, you know, I got to experience all of these for the very first time. And, you know, it worked on me again. And then the trailer released and everything else. God, the the build-up to this was huge. Just to have Lucas back, to have Spielberg back. and yeah, Let's talk about Spielberg. You know, I, I like to talk about the career trajectory Spielberg had been in in the years leading up to an indie release because I think it says a lot about what he brings to these films. Here, he was in the most experimental, but I'll go ahead and say the best phase of his career. And if we were to ever c- cover more Spielberg, I think the 2000s, 
meaning 2000 to 2010 would be the years I would want to cover. Because he was making dark films like AI, which I find to be his understated masterpiece. I have done articles on that. Maybe we'll cover that one one day. Munich, Minority Report, which we'll eventually get to, Matt. And Catch Me If You Can. Yes, he has War of the Worlds remake, which the less said about that obvious 9-11 metaphor, the better. But Matt, would you agree? Like This is the most experimental phase of Spielberg's career. Experimental, absolutely. I appreciated that around this time he was doing different things because I sort of put Spielberg's career into three chunks. I go from Duel to E.T., E.T. through, I would say, Hook, and then Schindler's List on. Uh, maybe, maybe I could do a fourth one now if you do, let's say, the last 10 years, this particular time. I was curious about all the projects he was doing because they were all radically different. AI, he took that over for Kubrick. I do think that's one of his best movies. And then he made one of his worst with Minority Report, which is an astounding piece of shit I can't wait to talk about several Mm. down the line. I think it is an abysmal fucking movie. And War of the Worlds, I watched it recently, and I got to say, it's it makes me want to see Spielberg do an actual horror movie because that's got some of the best tension for the first half of the movie. When the things first come out, and there's that part where Dakota Fanning is being hunted by the, the giant arm later on in the movie. I think that, that stuff, and the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, makes me want to see Spielberg do a horror movie. Munich, interesting, especially if you've seen the ending. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but yeah, it was, weird. it was weird the placement of this, that he did those movies, and then said, all right, I'm going to do an Indiana Jones movie. Like it's par for the course as far as variety, but I was always curious about the why. Why at this time? Yeah, God, we're gonna we have to do that phase of his career. Now, just to preview my thoughts, I didn't think it would be possible for me to hate Dakota Fanning. I hate her in that movie. Completely despise her. In regards to Spielberg directly, yeah, some of those movies I adore. Some of those movies I think it shows him wanting to do something different, and even if it's not experimental, of at least attempting to do something and break free of some captivity that maybe he put himself in. And I do see him doing things different, and I look at his phases kind of... I, I break them into blocks like his his sentimentality of just like suburban stuff happens. And then I look into his sci-fi film. And then I look into his what-if documentary type films, or maybe I should say his Eastern European, uh, West European films. You know, anything from Schindler's List to Saving Private Ryan, you know, those kind of films. And then I look at things like this, his adventure films. So I break them down into genres more than time frames, just because that's my mindset. But I was happy he was back for this, because looking at things that, like... Minority Report, like Munich. I was excited to see what he was going to bring here. Harrison Ford, the third component of this franchise. Adam, you remember the Arsenio Hall show, woof, right? Woof, woof, Back woof. In the... Yeah, sure do. <laughs> yes, early 90s. In, those, in that phase of our lives, a lot of people were going out on the weekends. I was spending Friday nights watching Arsenio Hall and Saturday nights watching Saturday Night Live. So that tells you how my social life was as a teenager. But I would watch Arsenio Hall every Friday, and he had Harrison Ford on. He was promoting probably The Fugitive or Presumed Innocent, one of those films. And Arsenio Hall flat out asked him, would you do Han Solo or Indiana Jones again? And for Han Solo, Ford said, you know what? I think that character's trajectory is done. I don't think I could bring anything else to anything they do in a Star Wars films. I definitely wouldn't do that. <laughs> Little would he know. But when it came to Indiana Jones, he said, and I quote in a New York Minute, 
the whole audience erupted. I got excited. So Harrison Ford was definitely game. This was a character that I mentioned in the first film. I don't think he had a real connection to Han Solo. I think that was a job at the time. He was a carpenter. He was trying to get out of that rut. Indiana Jones was a close character to him, and he was all game for coming back to this. And yes, that was in 91, 92, maybe 93. So let's talk about the development of this film. Spielberg and Lucas, they were starting to throw ideas around around the mid-90s. They wanted to go back to 50 serials, predominantly them, it came from outer space, and the thing from another world, and many scripts got done around this time, and Lucas had the idea of doing Aliens. And then Harrison Ford said he wouldn't star in a Steven Spielberg alien movie. They hired Jeffrey Baum to once again expand on Lucas's idea of these aliens, and the script was done in March of 1996. And then Independence Day happened. <laughs> And Spielberg was like, you know what, with this movie coming out and doing huge gangbusters, I don't want to kind of piggyback on that. So Lucas focused on the prequels. It would have been bad timing because you also had Mars Attacks, which came out as Mm. Independence Day was. So much so that people thought it was a parody Mm -hmm. before knowing the movie was what it was actually about. Would I have liked to have seen it around that time? No, but considering Spielberg made The Lost World, Around that time, I'm, yeah. I would have preferred to see Indiana Jones versus Lost World. Yeah, makes two of us. Now, to me, I think you could have gone and done something fun, you know, hands-in-hands with Independence Day. I think that Mars Attacks is a parody of good filmmaking, so I think that would have hurt it more than anything. Yes, that's a shot across the bow. Uh, so I, I think that the... The alien sci-fi action piece came and went ridiculously quickly in the 90s, and I think as soon as we were getting close to the end of the millennium, people were looking for something. I mean, the world was going to end, so we were looking for something different anyway. Well, yeah, every time it switched to artificial intelligence, it's going to kill us. Like, that that was <laughs> that was the big paradigm shift. In the 90s, in the early to mid-90s, it was about sci-fi gone wrong, which admittedly Jurassic Park has components of that as well. But then you've got, like, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla came out in the late 90s. Yeah. <laughs> Which, which that movie felt like it should have, A, never been released at all, and B, if it was, it should have been released in the early 90s. Because you think that would have been the movie that tried to piggyback the most on Jurassic Park? For sure. By 2000, Lucas had finally convinced Spielberg to use aliens by explaining, and I quote, they're not extraterrestrials, they are interdimensional. So... Mm. <laughs> God, George, George Lucas would be an amazing lawyer. You're not fucking kidding. <laughs> And to use the word extraterrestrial to Spielberg, who <laughs> kind of put that word in the pub consciousness mm-hmm. of everybody. Yeah. They went back to the drawing board, and by this time, a movie called The Sixth Sense had been released, and a young writer by the name of M. Night Shyamalan was big in the industry. He had a, quite a name. We did do the M. Night Shyamalan retrospective. Go back and check that out in the archives. So Lucas and Spielberg brought him in to work on a couple drafts for the film. It was going to be shot in 2002. I have read portions of what he did, and I will say there are a couple elements included in the final film, but an M. Night Shyamalan scripted indie film. Hmm. <laughs> I, I think we saw that. It was called Signs. Well, uh, yeah, of course. And let's not forget, this summer also gave us The Happening two weeks after, That's true. after Crystal Skull mm-hmm. came out. There was one other... There were so many ideas for a fourth movie. There was one... I don't know who developed this one, but it was going to be like The Lost City of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the idea, and I want to say they turned that into a video game. It's a video they game. They did, yep. and I loved it. I played that nonstop. That game was coming out. I was so excited. I bought it. It was for the PS1. Maybe it was the PS2. I don't remember which one, but I bought that fucker, and I played it all the way through at least four times. 
That game was amazing to me at the time. And it was like, at the time, that was my only way of getting indie back. You know, I think it was released 2004, 2005, around then. And I, I, I was so excited to play this game. Adam, you played that game, right? I know of it, but I never played it. I think I've seen walkthroughs ever since. I've even read the story. But I just never got around to playing it for no good reason. It, it, it's funny because there's a big story about a new Indiana Jones game being worked on right now that is supposed to be a massive story-based game, probably in the realm of Uncharted or Tomb Raider, which has taken that great recently. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it's going to be a Microsoft-exclusive, blank you, Lucasfilm Games, but yeah, I'm actually excited about a new indie game still coming out. So the script I wanted to talk about is the one done by Frank Darabont. His script was called Indiana Jones and the Lost City of Gold. And this had ex-Nazis on the hunt for Indiana. Darabont himself claims that Spielberg loved the script, but Lucas had major issues with it. <clears throat> you know, Darabont's a talented writer, and we're going to talk about Darabont. We're going to talk about The Mist and other Stephen King things that he has adapted. But Darabont scripting an Indiana Jones film, kind of like M. Night Shyamalan, it sounds great on the tongue, doesn't it, Matt? It does. And when someone, George Lucas of all people, has issues with the script, that leads me to believe it's actually good. <laughs> one thing, Lucas, self-admittedly, he's not a good writer. And honestly, Spielberg has a hit-or-miss record with the scripts he directs. I think he's taken a lot of scripts that are, are not very good. And really, there's only been, I think, two movies where he let the writer's voice overshadow his. Empire of the Sun, because that's almost a direct adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lincoln, when he got Tony Kushner to adapt this giant behemoth of a book for and all the dialogue and stuff. So there was one other script I wanted to mention. There was one where he finds Noah's Ark that was written, and that was really the first one that did the whole thing of him having a son. That script's not very good, apparently, but Noah's Ark would definitely tie into stuff like the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant. Also around this time, Spielberg didn't feel like he could satirize Nazis again after Schindler's List. So in the scripts, instead of Nazis, they changed it to the Cold War and Russians. Jeff Nathanson... Matt, who we talked about when we did Pirates, he came in and did a couple drafts. And then David Kep, who Spielberg had worked on with Jurassic Park and War of the Worlds, he came in for the final approved shooting script. So this went through so many phases until this movie was finally shot and released in 2008. You know, so many of the people that were involved with this, and I think that's where the difference really comes from. That's where you get story by could be great and written by can be utter crap. And I think there's some big distinctions to be had there. I think so many of these people involved in this created great stories and maybe had horrible scripts. And I think what we get here at the end is obviously kind of a mix of some of the story elements throughout. It's weird that Lucas, in the end of everything that he had a problem with at the beginning of his career, is proved right. The corporation and studio system will find a way to utterly blank you from mind when you're trying to get something done. And when it comes to something like this that is, you know, franchised out and is worth so much more, you know, the movie's almost nothing but an ad for everything that else that they're going to put out. And I think it just shows that, you know, when you got to go through a dozen people to get a script and you got to go through so many other people just to get something out there, I think in the end we start to see Lucas prove right that too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the stew. So this thing comes out 2008. Me working for the school paper, I was able to go the, uh, about a few days before the movie had come out. Did a review of the paper. It was a very positive review. And then I went with my brother the weekend the movie had come out. And me and him, we came out. And again, I had a lot of fun in that screening. We came out talking about how much we liked it. The shock and awe of coming out of that theater and seeing the hate spewed on the internet about it 
really took me aback. I could not believe how much this movie was just taking a beating from critics, from people on message boards. I believe Facebook was out, but I don't think I had it around this time. I didn't have Facebook until about 2010, 2011. I could not believe it. Adam, you saw this in the drive-in. Were you happy with it when you first came out? I remember leaving the theater going, man, that was a pretty dang fun time. I got Indy back. I got Marion back. I got this, that. I got everything that I was expecting. And, yeah, I think at that point on the Internet, I think Tom and MySpace had started to give everybody the public forum to decide that everybody's opinion should be known and should be adhered to. And that's when, you know, it started to really, everybody felt the need to shit on everything for attention, this being one of the big ones. But I do think this had an unenviable task of coming out the summer that it did. And I think as everything got compared to it and it got compared to everything else, some of that backlash, some of those words got more venomous, and much like any type of social media hate now, as soon as a person sees one thing, they want to join the club and shit on things just to shit on it. So this was one of the ones, kind of like going to the prequels, where it became it became chic just to shit on this movie because of what it was. Yeah, I was taken aback much like you were, because I walked out of that theater, and I have to say, at the time, after seeing the imitators like The Mummy and National Treasure, it was good to have the OGs back to show these young kids how it's done. And that was my opinion when I walked out of the theater until I watched uh, my buddies on South Park, of all things, where they did an episode (laughs) a couple weeks after the movie had come out, Spielberg and Lucas raped Indiana Jones, which I thought was was a step too far. But the thing that made me laugh the hardest is they did it in the style of the the accused with Jodie Foster, where he is raped on a pinball machine. But the genius thing, it's a Howard the Duck pinball machine. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> that episode was really the first time I realized how many people just did not care for this movie. And we need to put this clear out. Not that Rotten Tomatoes is the end-all, be-all. In fact, I think it's a very flawed system. It's got a 77% which is not what you would expect with the amount of hatred this movie has gotten from a considerable portion of fandom. And we're going to talk about this with The Last Jedi, too. That movie scored in the 90s, and you think with the way people talk about that movie, it's one of the worst movies ever made. So I was of the mentality, you know, I thought it was good. I didn't have a whole lot of complaints walking out of that theater. Yeah, and this was even proven to me when the November after the DVD had come out and it was like a real intricate DVD. It had a whole bunch of behind the scenes pictures and things inside it. There was like a whole book included inside it. I still have it to this day. Yeah, really interesting packaging on that. And I brought that home and I took it to my parents' house and they lived about 40 miles away from where I was going to school in Reno. And I brought it and I gave it to my dad to watch and he went in his room and he came out of he watched it. He came out and he said, that's the most fun I've had watching a movie in a long time. So... To me, I just, like you guys, I did not understand this. So my interest in revisiting this was thinking, could I come out of this saying the same thing where I had a good time watching it? Or are the years of going through these movies and putting a whole critical stamper on this dim my thoughts on what I thought at the time was a pretty good time? Two things. I think anticipation sometimes can be the theft of joy. And I think that's the issue with a lot of people. And I think it's going to be interesting because we're watching these pretty quick succession back to back to back to back. So we're taking this as watching the story evolve and watching the characters evolve along this journey. And I think we're going to be able to see it from a different standpoint that way. But then we also get to pick apart the critical parts and sometimes being critical and 
calling out some parts that are bad doesn't mean that you don't like something. And I think that's going to be part of the fun discussion. I also think timing is a crucial factor in the response, particularly by comparison to the Iron Man and the Dark Knight, which are comic book movies, absolutely. But they are considerably more grounded than almost anything you had up to that point. And you compare it to Indiana Jones, which is the most fantastical of the three movies by far and was considered a huge leap in logic and reality in comparison to the three movies, that I think that also affected why people, some, had the response that they did. That's a good point. When Indiana Jones seems the most fantastical out of Indiana Jones, Iron Man, and Batman, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I don't think it's what you would have expected walking into the summer, that Indy is the one that takes the most leap of logic. And I think there was a certain general populace that people wanted more reality-based movies. You know, we talked about post-9-11 I know this is a few years out, but you look at what they did with Bond, grounding that. You look at Dark that. Knight. You look yeah. at the the Bourne movies, Dark Knight, absolutely, Iron Man. Those are, you know, stripping things down because they matched the world that we were in. Whereas this is a homage to serials in the same way that the first three are. But sci-fi really was not doing well around this time. You know, you had stuff like Sahara, which mm. bombed tremendously, was lost around this time yep mm-hmm. I, I think it had ironically that series had nuked the fridge by this point if I correctly. <laughs> it would be a year before Star Trek would come back into the general populace I just I think it timing timing is the key word I think with the response to this movie on the whole if this came out the year prior it might have been a little bit of a different conversation because that year you had stuff like Spider-Man 3 and Pirates 3. This would have definitely fit in much more with those. One more point before we get to the plot. As much hate as this movie's gotten, and Matt, you made a great point, that it still has a pretty good critical consensus. I also mentioned in the beginning, this made almost $800 million at the box office, so it was a massive success. So say what you want. The fact is, it was a massive success for these guys, and it just brought the quota up even more. Absolutely, for sure. And you don't make $800 million with one-time viewings. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of repeat viewership, and this is... Indiana Jones, I think, is one of those franchises, and, and Marvel's gotten there, but it took a little bit. It's it's a four-quadrant film. I mean, it is an entire family film. I would be happy to take my kids, my spouse, my parents, all of us to go see an Indiana Jones movie. So there's always something special about that, because everybody in the house can feel like they want to go see this movie. And I think that's something about this franchise and this character is it has spanned generations. So let's get into this. So we're seeing an old school Paramount logo dissolve. And what does it dissolve into? Not a mountain, not a gong, not a rock formation, but an anthill. Oh, look, you're making a molehill out of a mountain. They <laughs> flipped it. <laughs> it gets run over by a car blasting hound dog by Elvis, and this literally feels like Lucas going back to his American graffiti roots. Oh, it totally does. I mean, the main sidekick in this movie is a greaser. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so let, let's talk about this right now. Setting it in the 50s, I think, was the appropriate choice given Harrison Ford's age. And i got to say, one of my favorite things about this movie is the first third really takes advantage of that conceit and that time, mm-hmm. that time period with the fashion and the production design and dealing with the post-atomic age. So I have I have no issues with how this movie is set, when it's set, and how it's depicted. The time frame of the 50s feels appropriate. Everything there with the Cold War, especially being that you're going somewhere different, somebody different. I can't stand 
greasers. I can't stand <laughs> greaser culture. And starting it off even with an Elvis song, just it. <laughs> the drag race. Uh, right away, it's kind of like, uh, don't like the music, don't like the drag race, and it's just, it, it's appropriate for the time, but I think there's other ways you could have done this without just having to completely capitulate to Lucas's freaking hard-on for this decade. Oh, I can't wait to get back into King with you. <laughs> <laughs> this car's passing by a bunch of army vehicles, or does it, as one goes neck and neck with this vehicle. They go by the Atomic Cafe until we come across a Nevada Army base in 1957. And this is interesting because, Matt, you brought this up last week. None of these openings feel the same. The first week we had an intense introduction to the main character. The week after, Indy finds himself in a little Bond adventure contained within Club Obi-Wan. Last week we saw him get into an adventure as a scout trooper. Here we're following a bunch of kids as they run over a molehill and lead the Russian army into an army base that they just take over. I appreciate the variety. That's one of the things I I respond to the most of these movies is that, yeah, they're part of the same franchise, but they all, as I said in the last show, tweak the formula in key ways. And unless the trailer doesn't give this away either, that he's in the trunk Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. until you... There's a shot where he gets out of the car and you put on the fedora. That's the giveaway. So I, I like this setup a lot. No complaints. And this is also, I think, the longest opening sequence of the four. Mm Mm-hmm. If you from the start point to the point where he is being interrogated by the uh, by the FBI, it's got to be the longest opening of these four movies. Adam, Sam, Greaser's notwithstanding, are you enjoying the the what's set, what is setting up here? Yeah, I mean, take take the Greaser, you know, part of it. But even when the race is going on, like once it get past the first like twenty thirty seconds, that they're actually having fun back and forth and smiling, and it's not overly done. I'm actually having a good time with them going. You know, it's kind of a fun little intro to it. You don't expect what's going to happen. There's nothing that makes it seem like these are the bad guys here doing it. So I think it's a good little intro to what's going on. And to Matt's point, it's nice to have every single opening be something different. There's something really nice to be said about that. Spielberg finds it fitting to show a use of deadly force authorized sign and then pan up to an American flag. We then see the car stop and open the trunk. By the car, we see the familiar fedora fall to the ground and out steps our title character, as well as Way Winston's character of Mac. Before we get to him, let's talk about old Ford here. He was 64 when this movie was filmed, and he and Spielberg insisted on no touch-ups on his hair. They both wanted it gray, and they wanted to play into the age aspect of this character. The last time we saw him, it was 19 years ago. He certainly lived the years, but I don't think the mileage has caught up with him just yet. He once again worked out hard for this part, and I think it shows. You can say a few things on the negative side of this movie, but one thing you can't say is that Ford did not come to play. He fit back into this fedora like a glove, in my eyes. I once again really like him as Indy here. What about you guys? I think he looks fantastic. I think he actually looks like he wants to be here compared to maybe some other movies that brought him back. I think he looks fantastic. I agree with the decision to not young him up. I think it's important. I feel like he's aged 20 years since the last film because he did. So, yeah, everything going on with Ford uh, from his initial introduction, you know, even though it's it's not going to be as easy as it used to be, (laughs) I think it's right on point and a good way to go. I think after Raiders, this is my favorite Ford performance of the four. I think he's he's great here. It's funny that these guys are Bond fans. They don't do what they did with Roger Moore, where they act like his age is not a factor. It, you know, because he does some stuff in this movie, but it's not like he's chasing Grace Jones up the Eiffel Tower. Or anything. <laughs> <laughs> he still feels like the same character. That, that's the thing that impressed me the most. I was expecting him to be a bit off. Maybe he was playing it more... 
like uh, just a crusty old man, which we'll be talking about very soon, I imagine. But I, I think he's he I, he absolutely came to play, and I and I think. Part of my enjoyment that I get from this movie is just seeing him back in this role and not phoning it in, which we've seen him do in a lot of movies, not just ones that he's come back to a key role in. Now, Ray Winstone, uh, the actor who played Brody, he died in 1992, and we, of course, need Indy to have kind of a sidekick to play off of. We'll get two, including a notorious one later on, but in these early stages of the film... Spielberg and Lucas decided on this Winstone character because they had seen him in a film called Sexy Beast and thought he could fit in nicely. I have to say, I think as hard as Winstone tries, I can't get into this character at all. And Ford and Winstone have zero chemistry here. I don't like the whole triple agent thing they do with this character. He is kind of a mess in this film. I like Ray Winstone a lot in this movie, but I like him more than the writers do because they don't know what to do with him. He, he's got the big show problem where he, his allegiances keep turning out, turning out a dime. But, but this is different than what Ray Winstone, because he, he played the tough guy up mm-hmm. to this point. Like the departed, sexy beast, Beowulf. So this is kind of against type, but for a movie introducing this character for the first time... I buy the two of them having a rapport and a history with one another in a way that kind of surprised me, because there's not a whole lot of exposition. There's lines here and there, but I think they play off each other well, but the problem is his character feels very unnecessary. Eh, I think he's fine at best. I think they got the wrong person from Sexy Beast if you were going to pull people just because you like the film. You want but to I, I would much... You know what? I would prefer Ben Kingsley in this compared to the Ben Kingsley we're going to discuss later on in a few years. And, uh, but yeah, actually, I think Ben Kingsley and Harrison Ford would be great together. I mean, they don't know what to do with his character. Like, he's fine in it, but it, he's in and out of the film more than Kate Blanchett, and he flips every time that he's there. It feels like he was rewritten not only in the lead-up to the film, but during filming of the film. So I think you could have excised him after the first third, and we would have been all right. We see the sh- a shadow of the hat going on in the door of the army car as a soldier yells. And we cut to our time-lived hero stepping out and just uttering the word, Russians. Max says that this isn't going to be easy, to which Indy replies, not as easy as it used to be. And then says, put your hands down, will you? You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> Again, for- the Ford lines are great in this movie. <laughs> this, this opening part, to Matt's point, when they're together like this, like they play off each other pretty well. You know, I think he is a good... He, he's someone to... for. Ford to give some good lines too and this beginning kind of shows it. Spielberg and Lucas do go to what worked in that first film as in addition to the reintroduction to our hero we're also getting an introduction to our villains of this film. First second in command and stand in for first three indie films henchman Pat Roach who had also uh, Pat Roach had also passed in 2004 and so they grabbed this big guy to kind of stand in for him and his commanding officer making her return to the percolated airways Miss Kate Blanchett as Irina Spalco. Now Matt the last time we spoke about Blanchett you were pretty much the eyewitness of me and Mike Ganeri fighting for two hours about her film The Aviator. I didn't like her on that film too much. Here, she came in, a massive fan of the franchise, and she had been wanting to play the villain in a big-budget movie for quite a while before she was cast in this. She wanted to bring something different to this character. The Bob haircut was her idea, and she based a lot of the character's behavior on, believe it or not, Rosa Klebb from Russia with Love. Well, I don't find her to be the best villain of the franchise, I do believe she's second. For the most part, I like her in this. So I agree with everything you said. She came to play because she does in every movie she's in. She's kind of the opposite of Harrison Ford, where she's like the most professional on every set. She got to play the big villain in Thor, where she got to choose scenery, which was fun to see. As far as her here, my problem is not her performance. She's not written as evil enough. 
There's too many points where Indiana Jones is just like, okay, I'll work with you. And they also don't make you hate her like you can't stand Belloc because he's mm-hmm. such a good rival and he's always one step ahead. I'm not going to call her underwritten because I think that's being unfair. But I also would say the big issue is just she's not she's not evil enough. And that's my problem with the Russians in general. I know it'd be very easy to just paint them with the same brush that you painted the Nazis. But at the same time, it feels too much like a partnership. Not necessarily that Indiana Jones is being held hostage by them. More so later on. In the opening, it, I think the dynamic is perfect. I agree with that. I really do enjoy this opening. So I have crushed on Kate Blanchett since I saw Elizabeth in theaters. You know, I go that far back. Um, I think she is an amazing thespian and fantastic. And I think she is just distracting in this movie more than she is evil. That haircut it has as much screen presence as anybody else in this film, enough that every time it's on screen, it's hard to pay attention to the words coming out of her mouth because that hair is such a freaking distraction. I mean, it's it's Charlize Theron in freaking Fast 9. Like, it's just bad, 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 bad. She's She has the potential to be a good villain, but yeah, she's not evil enough. We don't know who's leading her. It, does she actually have telepathy or does she not? So she seems to have nothing but an outline to go on to base her character. She's a good presence because she's a good actor, but just solely and sorely underutilized for what she could have brought to it. Falco shows up in sunglasses and Jones guesses that she's from the Ukraine and she goes over her credentials and she mentions what she doesn't know. She'll find out. She's already trying some Ooga Booga tricks to get inside Indy's head. But like Jabba the Hutt, mind tricks won't work on him, and instead she says they're going to do things the hard way. This character, it's driven, Matt, by power, knowledge, both. What exactly is she driven by here? I don't know, and I don't think David Kemp knows. Yeah. Because while the, the, the characters are very underwritten, there's also overcompensation because they try to over-explain later on what the fuck the Crystal Skulls actually do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like this movie is it's got it's got polarities much, much like magnets, which is ironic given what we'll see in a few minutes. But it's like it's either one extreme or the other. And I, like I said, I think she's very underwritten. And if you want to make us hate her, have her like torture somebody or kill a dignitary, like do something really sinister. They go inside a warehouse where Spalco interrogates Indy about a box that she wants that he had retrieved ten years before. I think it's important those doors open, and if you turn your head, you miss it, that they're walking into Area 51. Yep. Which which I always thought was kind of cool and fun. I know people absolutely loathe that fact, but I thought it was a cool, fun way to go about it. It's, it's They're poking fun at what they know they can poke fun at. Exactly. And it also, the movie plays its hand, so the fact that there's aliens at the end should not surprise you. Yep. I feel like a lot of the critiques people had was that, Oh, the aliens came out of nowhere. Um, well, they really don't, considering they're at Area 51. Exactly. Well, they basically say, because, one, I like the fact that they gave at least a quick one-sentence backstory to they found Indian Mac doing something in Mexico, digging up something. So they literally caught them while they were doing a story we don't get to see. It's a little line, one line that I like. But they mention, offhandedly, if you're paying attention, that Indy went to Roswell to help that cleanup and to help the exploration. So the tracks are laid for what we get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one thing I respect. The movie does not really pivot into becoming a full-on science fiction movie. It's it's that from its inception. You can argue about how it's pulled off, but I don't think it should have been that much of a surprise when you get to the 
the last 20 minutes of this movie. Agreed. They walk in as Indy insists on a compass and then bullets. He says that the contents are magnetized and that bullets and gunpowder will help identify the box. He throws the gunpowder and, and shotgun shells, which lead them to one box that is pulled out. Now, before we talk about the box, let's talk about the lighting of this film. By this point, digital filmmaking had totally taken over, but Spielberg really wanted a consistent feel of this and the other three pictures. So he had a cinematographer, Janus Kinski, who he's worked with since Similar's List, watch and study all three prior films, which ended up being the basis for how he lit this one. I think the lighting of this film is good. I don't really have any beefs with it, other than when we get to later scenes, the film does have more of a digital feel that isn't consistent with the other films. Though I did really notice what Spielberg was going for in this opening scene, and for the most part, I think most technical elements mesh well. Hold your thoughts on the effects, because that discussion is coming. What do you guys feel about the look, specifically the lighting of this? It's more effective when the movie is is actually focusing on period detail and being consistent with the feel of the first three movies. There's a point where that evaporates, much like the gunpowder, but as far as what's done here, it doesn't feel like it's a totally separate universe. I think it feels very much in line. I think it looks good. I think it's shot and lit well, but I do think that there's a pretty substantial difference that you can see when we're on a stage with practicals and Matt and when, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> and when we're not. So I think that part, not as much as it's shot, but the look of it, I think, is apparent. Not to talk about the effects, but just in realm of how it looks compared to Matt or not. They pull the box out and open it. Glasses get pulled into it, and we see Spalco look right at the title artifact, i.e. the MacGuffin of the film. They're cutting open the plastic around the alien in the box. Like you guys said, this doesn't come out of nowhere. We're seeing it here. And this is when Indy chooses to try his escape. He punches a few guards and uses his whip to get a gun before Mac pretends to be a double agent. Again, no need for this character. I mean, this turn is just, like you said, Matt, it's underwritten, isn't it? I think here it's fine, because for Indy it's a genuine surprise. Mm-hmm. When it happens again, it feels redundant. So I have no issue with it here. And this ties into the Red Scare, which was a huge thing at the time, that anybody could could change sides or be a communist sympathizer. And it's also important this character is not American, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is a big reason why this works as well. Indy uses his last words to say, I like Ike. As he runs for cover, heads up top. This escape scene, complete with him landing in the truck saying, damn, I thought that was closer, was a big part of the trailer I saw, which got me excited for this movie. I think this scene's rather fun. I think it's fun at first. I do like that trailer scene. It still plays well in the movie. I think that this scene, like some that we have later on, have the Fast 7 version of a (laughs) five-mile runway, where this is the biggest warehouse possible when you're doing full-blown truck chases inside the freaking warehouse, (laughs) including knocking over and showing the Ark of the Covenant again, which I guess that means this is third out of fourth film that we get to see the Ark. (laughs) You know, you look at the little thing last time. But it's a good, fun scene, you know, when... You're just the action part of it, I think, is classic Indiana Jones action. Yeah, I question some of the spacing of this warehouse. <laughs> because there's multiple vehicles that are that are driving in, in this warehouse. It's not just one. I think it's good because, again, Indiana Jones is not doing anything that absurd. Aside from the fact he probably should have thrown his back out when he hit the, uh, <laughs> when he hit the windshield. Because he, like, he is 65. Mm-hmm. But it's not like he's running two miles. Like He gets on a couple boxes uses the the whip. It's nowhere... It's on par with what you see, like, Bruce Wayne do in The Dark Knight Returns, and he's in his, like, mid-50s at that point. 
Indy punches his way out of the truck, and we're hearing those similar punching sound effects as the truck smashes another box, and we see an image of something we've seen before peeking through the box. Matt, too egregious a uh, reference? Yeah, I think that was a, <laughs> a fridge too far. <laughs> Adam, you seem to enjoy this reference. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's weird. Like, depending on mood, I'm either like, ugh, that's unnecessary, or ha, that's fun. So it's, you know, it, it kind of goes that way. Being that we get the we get the hints of the score and everything else, we know it's in there, so we didn't need it. But watching it this time, and I'm actually enjoying myself already, you know, into this. It's amazing how much happens so quickly in this opening, but I'm not bothered by it. Same. Indy plays a game of chicken with some trucks and once again hops the sky beams before jumping down again. He fights this big thug in a nuclear reactor room as they end up on this nuclear vehicle that takes them out of the town. This is when the opening got weird for me. I loved him in the warehouse. By the time he got in this room and they leave like this, I'm like, okay, this is different. I'm liking the difference. But here on this viewing, I was like, what are they doing? We're taking advantage of the fact that we're now in the post-atomic age, which is why they have this giant... I don't know, speed tunnel mm-hmm. with, with the rocket. I could have done without the shot of the gophers uh, yeah. looking, whatever those are, but this isn't too far of a stretch for me. I'm a look. We had straight up voodoo two movies ago. We had a knight that's lived for centuries. Apparently there's a Lazarus pit in that, um, <laughs> in that temple. So this is at least somewhat scientifically accurate. <laughs> For five minutes. Adam, did you have any problems with where they were going with this? I didn't, just because I do think as they were trying to put this film together, they're like, okay, what did we have? We had this stuff from the desert. If we go into the desert, we have military testing. Did they have these, you know, Sonics? They were trying to build these super things. Like, this is stuff that is went on in the Arizona desert, or Nevada desert, Arizona desert, to this day yep. with military testing and stuff. There are articles so every I didn't week here about it. Yeah, so I didn't find it far-fetched. I do find it a little more silly than it needs to be, but I do think they've taken this franchise, as we discussed last film, into more of a action comedy as opposed to just an action adventure. So I'm having a good time with it. After they land, Indy pushes the thug's head away from his shoulder and off the vehicle. I thought that was funny. As he runs and hides... He ends up in a small town that had already been detonated, but is filled with dummies as a nuclear siren sounds, and there's a countdown to a nuclear blast. What an interesting, if dark in its own way, of opening your indie film. We're going we're going to that post-nuclear age, as you mentioned, huh, Matt? It's literally the nuclear family yes. uh, that gets destroyed. <laughs> uh, just funny, because that's, that's something that Spielberg has played Absolutely. a lot with in his film. So I think there is some, there's some hidden satire in this whole nuking the fridge scene. But I also like that it's putting Indiana Jones officially, maybe in more so his mind, because you get the sense he's a war hero, but maybe he hung it up after World War II, um, or maybe slightly before. So I like that they're destroying this whole... He's caught up in something where they're literally destroying those boomer generation Mm -hmm. fantasies, uh, and it's now we're ramping it up to something very different. Yeah, my, my only real quibble was that it's, you know, it's after World War II, and I know we're still doing nuclear testing, but it, it feels a little late, even though it's it's really not, and it's just, it's, it's, it's funny, it's fine, and it's exactly what you'd expect to stumble across. It's funny that we get a movie coming out pretty soon by Wes Anderson that's a take on this entire town, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with Asteroid City, but it's... I don't have an issue with this. I think it's very fitting with 50s, with the testing, with everything else that's going on. It fits the movie. What's not dark 
is how Indy escapes this predicament. So, in one of movie history's most notorious scenes, Indy climbs into a fridge and is able to withstand a nuclear blast as he's thrown for miles and lands safely. You know what? Even at the time, I went with this. It was different, but is this really much less believable than Indy escaping a falling plane by inflating a raft and jumping out of it? As you guys have pointed out countless times in this series, this is Steven Spielberg's Bond, and Bond does this shit all the time. I never once scoffed at this idea, but oh boy did the internet. So much so that one of the biggest sites based on movie news would be named after it, Nuke the Fridge. I don't have any issues with this. And I was it was one of those things, those head-turning moments, and it was one of the first times I looked at the internet, I'm like, holy shit, do people hate this? I don't. I don't hate the fact that he uses the fridge to survive a nuclear blast. Like, you, you use Bond as the perfect example. I give a lot of that a pass, and this world that Indiana Jones inhabits is not grounded in reality. My issue is when it hits the ground at full speed yeah. and keeps tumbling and he gets out of it without a scratch. That's the part that I think is slightly exaggerated, but as far as this, you know, him escaping, it is what it is. You either go with it or you don't, and I think this is one of those things that has been grossly overly exaggerated as far as its lack of quality. It didn't bug me when I first saw it. I don't think it needs to be thrown as far as it does. As I only, you know, but whatever, we suspend reality. I think there's other parts of this movie later on of things that happen that should seriously maim or injure characters that they just walk away from or drive away from that are much more egregious than this right here. So I think it's something people can point a finger at, but uh, I mean, one, it's lead-lined and it specifically points that out. Mm -hmm. So I think they're just doing a wink and nod to the nuclear age, testing lead, all that kind of stuff that was going on. Nuke in the Fridge has never been one of my bones of contention with this movie. Indy walks up and sees the nuclear blast as we cut to him being cleaned and then interrogated by agents about Mac and the situation involving him aiding the KGB agents. I didn't have a problem with him surviving that bridge fall, but I did have a problem with him just being able to get up on a hill and look and see this nuclear blast without him feeling any effects of it. Yeah, that's my issue, especially because he's considerably older. Exactly. Like, bones are, yeah. bones are far more fragile. Uh-huh. So they pull Spanko's file, and we're hearing that she's into psychic paranormal research. Indy is told that his findings are of great interest to the Bureau, as we cut to Jim Broadbent visiting Indy at his college while teaching. It was interesting to see Jim Broadbent here. He had just won. Had he won his Oscar at this point? I don't think he had. Probably a few years ago. No, he had. That was about five or six years Five or six later. Okay. All right. Uh, What do you guys feel about Jim Broadbent? We don't get too much of him, but he does play a pretty big role in the beginning stages here. Well, he's here just for the sake of continuity. Mm -hmm. He's basically a stand-in for Brody. Exactly. uh, Which is how how he's done. I think he's okay. You know, it's, it's a good bit of casting. But if you could somehow put Brody in Last Crusade as much as you do, why not just drag Jim Broadbent along? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, the weird thing is, I mean, you you bring him in here, there's a story about him sticking up for Indy against the CIA, which was a fairly new, you know, even organization at that point, and him having to resign to for Indy to get paid on the leave of absence. Everything that happens here has no bearing on the rest of the film whatsoever. There should be something going on about the U.S. government suspecting Indy the entire time and them either following him or being a part of what's going on. But everything that happens with Janitor from Scrubs interrogating him in the last scene, 
to sorry, that's Neil Flynn, everybody, <laughs> to uh, who's also in uh, The Fugitive with Harrison yeah, Ford, yeah. to this scene here, to Jim Broadbent. None of this plays any impact whatsoever in the entire rest of the film. So it's all superfluous. That's one of my issues is untapped potential, like having J. Edgar Hoover be the main villain. Yeah. Sort of them chasing after Indiana Jones. You know, that adds a sense of danger if you're not going to make the Russians just the epitome of of evil like the Nazis were portrayed as and are that could have been a way to offset it as it stands everything about this movie taking place in the 50s and taking advantage of that conceit evaporates as soon as they leave the country yep from that point on you you forget this movie is actually set in the 50s well we have one character who is really playing up to that time period but I see what you're saying but yeah the red scare itself the red menace itself could be the villain of this of you know who do you trust and duplicity and all that and Max sure as heck is not the embodiment of that that it should be, but you really could have some twisty attorneys. Who can you trust? Who can you not trust? Especially with the character that comes in at the halfway point. I think the Red Scare itself could have been a really good villain. Here, Broadbent's playing Dean Stanworth, and he's informing Jones that with the pressure the FBI is putting on him, he has no choice but to place Indy on an indefinite leave of absence. We see a painting of Marcus on the wall as this conversation is going on. We cut to a massive house that belongs to Indy. My God, this house is big. Beautiful. No shit. (laughs) Who says he's headed to London overnight, maybe settle down and teach there. And we're hearing about communist fear and panic, as you guys have pointed out. As Indy says, both his dad and Marcus have died in the last couple years. Now let's talk a little bit about Sean Connery. Sean Connery liked how this was handled and had good things to say about the film, though he did find it a little long. He did turn down a cameo in this because to him he kind of wanted to be a little more of the center of the film like he was last time, and it was just going to be a one-and-done deal. Would you guys like to have seen Connery in this? No, just because I don't think he's going to go through everything with Indy. I think he's literally the generation before. You know, I even think of him more in World War One than World War Two. So I think a cameo would have been fitting. But if he needed to be in this film... I just don't think he would have been up for it at that point. I think this is more than enough. I agreed. It, because if you got him, you would have had to find an excuse to put him in the movie more. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, if you didn't, that would have been a huge complaint. He was also retired, basically. Yeah. Movie. And I think he, he enjoyed spending his retirement pissing on Kevin McClory's grave and didn't want to be disturbed from that. <laughs> so as Indy boards the train, we're seeing the entrance of Mutt, played by a leather-clad like Marlon Brando, Shia LaBeouf, now, Matt, you and I have discussed LaBeouf's relationship to Spielberg before. Spielberg had really liked him in a film called Holes and put him in his production Disturbia. And by this point, he had also put him in Transformers. Here, Shia is playing a character that I would argue is just as criticized as Short Round and Willie Scott. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way. How do we feel about Shia in this movie? Adam, you go first. Ruinous, in a word. But I don't know many franchises that Shia is not. I don't know what Spielberg's love or lust or what he sees in this kid but maybe there's more to that holes than I'm than you know is public but Jesus criminy his freaking film boner for Shia LaBeouf is ridiculous and I think it compromises his integrity when he's directing films or producing films with Shia LaBeouf man this kid he could have been decent in here but what he's given to do, the way he plays it, and the way the character's written, knocks this film down. Of anything in this film that is worthy of massive derision, it is Shia LaBeouf and Mutt Williams. Question before I go to Matt. Yep. <laughs> Worse than Willie Scott? Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, boy, you know I can't go that far. You know what? I could look at Willie and I could mute the TV. And I, I would still... 
I would rather hear Willie shriek Indy than watch frickish Shia LaBeouf pull a comb out of a glass of water and continuously comb his fucking quaff. I just, I sorry, this goes back to me, I can't stand greasers. I'm sure Stephen King would love fucking everything to do with this character. I hate it. Well, for the record, we now know that if Pennywise showed up at Adam's house, he would come as Danny Zuko. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ruinous is a bit of a stretch for me. I think there were better choices for this role, this reeked of Spielberg. Because it wasn't just this at Transformers. Remember Eagle Eye? Spielberg was going oh, yeah. to direct mm-hmm. that at one point. Then he mm-hmm. pressed off to DJ Caruso. <laughs> Sucker! I think he's okay. He does what he's asked to do. He's the one thing that has to keep punching you in the face, no pun intended, that this movie takes place in the 50s, once they leave America. I'm sure there were other actors who could have done a better job, but I don't think he's ruinous. This is not Willie for me. This is not Jar Jar Binks. This is not the Negro bots from Transformers. I I can get through him, no problem. Yeah, I'm with Matt on this. I don't find him to be ruinous at all. He is written to be an integral part, and we'll get to that. But as far as a as a sidekick, I don't think he's ruinous. I, I kind of enjoy seeing the rapport between him and Ford. My question, though, going in, I should say coming out of this, why isn't this short round? If we're going to be playing the nostalgia card, I think it would have been great to see Indy play off Shorty one more time. I do know that Lucas was big on making Indy quote-unquote pay for his sins, and this character represents a lot of how Indy was as a teenager. Let's not forget Indy's conversation with his dad in the last film, where he said that Indy had left just as he was getting interesting, quote-unquote. This character of Mutt Williams is supposed to be about that, that, that age, and this, right down to the leather jacket and switchblade, feels like a complete George Lucas creation. Yes to this being... Lucas is hard on for this time period. The short round thing, I've never thought of that before, but it would make sense because we already have blatant references to the first movie and the third movie. Not a whole lot as far as acknowledgement of Temple of Doom. Outside of there's some questionable racism towards the end of this movie and tribalism, much like Temple of Doom. Uh, So I guess that was their tribute. My problem with this character is when you get the reveal. That's where my problems start. Because it's like fucking Star Wars, which is the George Lucas effect. Everybody's got to be fucking related to somebody. I think you could have a good time with Short Round there. I, I don't know. I think Spielberg has an issue giving anybody screen time that's not the prototypical white male in his films when you think about it. So I think maybe Short Round would be a stretch too far for Spielberg there. But I think you could have something when you play with the time period of Temple taking place before Raiders that Short Round would know Marion and would go to Indy for help to reveal that she's been captured. I think you could play the Red Scare when it comes to Short Round. So I think you could develop that really, really well. But yeah, for some reason, they never, ever had an interest to bring back that character. Yeah, and if anything, if I've learned anything in the time since Kiha Kwan has won that Oscar, he wasn't doing anything around this time. He was, in his mind, thrown out of Hollywood. They could have called him, yeah. and they didn't. And I found he that, that I found that Goonies, weird. He did that. Goonies, like two other things, mm. and then that really was 2002 it. was his last he role did, like, before he one... came back. Yeah. So Mutt rides up and gets the attention of Indy, or as he calls him, Old Man, and he tells him that someone named Harold Oxley is going to be killed. We cut to Mutt and Indy talking in a diner about how Oxley helped raise him, and this feels like a call, call back to Abner. It does. I like this scene, though. This right here, these two together, them discussing it, it's also the pointy scene. It's the explanation scene for for the film. Here's, you know, we're setting the template for what we're going to go do. But I do think here with them talking and 
without showboating, you know, his greaserness. I think this is a good scene with them here just discussing it, breaking it down, and the reveals that we get. So I like them here until the scene ends. Yeah, you're right. This is the pointy scene. A lot of this dialogue ended up in that trailer, too. Matt, how are you feeling? Do you think this is a callback to Abner, Matt? It's a spiritual take on it, which makes it even odder, or I should say more blatant, considering that Marion is also in this mm. movie, which, for the record, is something I did not know going into that really? theater. Mm. I guess I, I wasn't paying attention in the trailers, or not like I was reading behind-the-scenes details extensively at this time. But yeah, I like this scene a lot, and this is some of the best production design in the movie. From here through the college campus, uh, it's some of the best... But it's also the best action scene in the movie. Yeah. Mutt starts saying that Oxley was obsessed with the Crystal Skull before he disappeared in Akador, which is a myst- mystical lost city. Indy says that the legend says that the skull was stolen from Akador 300-plus years ago, and whoever returns it will be given control over its power... Mutt says that his mom said Indy would help him and that her name was Mary Williams. And Indy says that he knew a lot of Marys, which goes back to his womanizing days. So we're not even hearing that it's going to be Marion. We're just hearing the name Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that I, I was p- putting in my head, oh, maybe that's that's a fake name, Mary, Marion. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't do well with the red scare <laughs> as far as I <laughs> <laughs> they open the letter, and Indy notices the FBI casing the joint, so Indy tells Mutt to start a fight, and they escape by motorcycle. We're getting some of Mutt's specialty in this, which is driving really fast as Indy punches out the Russians. He hops back on the bike, and they're going through buildings as Russians crash into a Brody statue, and Mutt asks for the same approval Indy asked from his dad in the last film. And like Connery, Indy doesn't respond kindly. I kind of like that callback. I like this scene. Matt, you said you like this scene a lot too, right? Yeah, I do. I think this action scene is, is really cool. It's really exciting. And it's practical, mm-hmm. which is the thing I really appreciate. You know, there's actual mm-hmm. stunt work. You know, you're actually having, having to choreograph your blocking with how people are shot. And it's establishing that, this, that Mutt is not the annoying short round type. This is a character who can actually handle himself. This parallels, he's good with a knife, Indiana Jones is good with a whip. Uh, this is a character who could fend for himself, so I actually appreciate that there, there are some good parallels, and I don't, I personally don't find him annoying outside of the constant old man quips. Because I'm pretty sure Harrison Ford could beat his ass <laughs> without breaking a sweat. I waited for that one moment where he said something, and he just, de- he just cold cocks him. <laughs> I think it's a really good scene. I, I hate every time a switchblade is pulled out and flipped around. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's a good scene. On the surface, I got an issue with Indy literally taking a backseat to Mutt, but it makes sense for it being his bike. But I don't see Indiana Jones ever sitting bitch on a motorcycle. I just don't. But it's a good scene. It's a practical scene. And I think it's one of Spielberg's better filmed practical action scenes, to, to Matt's point. The blocking, the way that it's shot, the camera moves, I think it's really, really well done. It's kinetic. It pulls you in. I think music is done well. I really like this scene. It's a prototype for what he does in Tintin. They do an almost identical yeah. scene to this in that mm, movie. Absolutely. Which, for the record, I actually think I'd like to see more movies. Like, if, if you swap out George Lucas for Peter Jackson around this time, uh, I would have been curious to see how this movie if it would have gotten the backlash if you swapped Peter Jackson's name instead of George Lucas. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, Matt, or Adam, you said you liked the scene of them talking until it ended. Are you talking about the fight that gets this chasing going? Yeah, it, it just seems, the way that it ends just seems silly to, to to go that route, you know. And then again, he had to bust out his comb and dip it in the water while he's talking to the KGB mm-hmm. agents. It's just, it's just it, it bugs the shit out of me that much. 
but then when the action scene gets going, I'm having a decent time with it. Even even punching the you know the college students, you know, there's something about just a rowdy group of kids in the college bar getting into a fight. I think it works fine. Shia did say later that George Lucas, instead of concentrating a lot on the story, like story, he really wanted this whole thing of him combing his hair and everything else and the switchblade be a huge part of his character. And he said, okay, you got to do the switchblade like this. And he's the one who showed him how to work this blade. Like again, this was a huge George Lucas creation, and he seemed more focused well, on that. There, there is no doubt that if Lucas was on set, it was to do nothing to look at Shia and be like. This is how I acted in this time. Please do it this way. Have you seen American Graffiti? Go ask Harrison. Like, it's, there is no doubt he wants Shia to be... Re- Steven, I was cool back then, right? Like, he just, he wants Mutt to be this great character. And, yeah. <laughs> he also... I, I picture Shia LaBeouf going up to George Lucas and be like, can I have a purple switchblade? And he goes... Switchblade, the writer, switchblade, blue. <laughs> They drive through the library as a student of Indies has an educational question for him, and they drive off. More talk about the Crystal Skull as Indy goes through more notes, and he figures out the notes that being a riddle that Oxley left. From these notes, Indy concludes that the skulls are in Peru. And here's that red line again, huh, Adam? Yeah, this one's cool. And we talked about Nazca lines before, and we get Nazca lines here. And this, I think, is cool. It's fun. I like the breakdown of the note and the map. And, yep, good time. And he once again puts his hat down as they keep flying. I like that. We, we That's kind of a callback to Temple of Doom when he puts his hat over his eyes. And are they flying in storage? I don't know. <laughs> Look at them flying in the belly of the plane while Mutt's, you know, finding a reason to tinker with his motorcycle. Yeah, did they put they put Indiana Jones in the cargo hold, much like they did with Han <laughs> We see Mutt handle the switchblade, as Indy mentions. He once rode with and was AKA kidnapped by Pancho Villa, and then tells Mutt that he better make up with his mom, as you only get one. Indy learns that Mutt quit school because all they teach is useless skills, and now he fixes motorcycles for money. They're going through prison cells, and they're on a wild goose chase through the walls of the prison, and this makes Mutt get emotional, and they put together that Oxley was trying to return the skull to its final resting place, a.k.a. Ariala's grave. We cut to a cemetery as thunder rolls, and they are pursued by more islanders. Is this the racism you're talking about, Matt? This is part Part one. one. Part one. Part one. Of, of <laughs> Mutt falls down a ladder, and then they are attacked with poison darts, and Indy shoots a few. As Mutt asks if Indy's a teacher, Indy just responds with, part-time. Another line from the trailer that is pretty amusing. I like that. Great trailer mm-hmm. moment. That is a perfect line, but I don't understand how these, these natives have ninja skills. I know. <laughs> they fight like ninjas, mm-hmm. not like tribal warriors, so it, it kind of feels out of place. Mm. That they just show up. They're like Jedi. They just fucking teleport in. <laughs> Great line. Good scene. Um, I do think that the camera work and the direction kind of varies a lot, but I like the way most of this scene is shot. Um, I like that up angle when Indy has his line. But this is when it starts to be problematic for me, because I think once we get here and this really kicks off, I feel like this movie is turned into a video game for so much of the rest of it, and I never felt that way really in an Indiana Jones film before. What do you mean? Like, they gotta go here, then they gotta go here, then they gotta go here, that kind of thing? Well, even the things that, you know, when they set off booby traps, when they do things like that, there seemed to be a practical, there seemed to be a reason and practicality behind every one of them. Why stepping on this would do this, why leaning on this would do this. 
Here it seems more happenstance. It seems more accidental of everything they find instead of a deliberate, smart choice that Andy makes along the way. A lot of the exploration scenes also feel like they're more bystanders than an opposed to actual danger. Because this scene goes on for a while after they dispose of these guards. Like, there's not a whole lot of traps in the actual temple itself. Even in the end, for the last 20 minutes, they're, they're just walking. Yeah, it lasts a lot longer than it needs to. Yeah, and I also, one of the problems I have, they never outright say what the crystal skulls are capable of. Big problem. With the amount of time they talk about them, the fact that they're, it's still unclear their potential is frustrating, and I think that's one of my problems with David Kep as a writer. He's never been very good at giving you all the key details as far as potential. I have this problem a bit with Jurassic Park. I have this problem with Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie, where it's just everything is overly simplified. It, it can do whatever the plot needs it to. He sucks at explaining the supernatural or the occult. Mutt is very intent on fixing his hair instead of providing Indy some light, but he eventually does, and, <laughs> and Indy reveals a skull. He pulls a lever as CGI scorpions come down and attack Mutt, and Indian says the bigger the scorpion, the better, as they don't bite. True. It is very true. They also, they don't bite, by the way. They sting. That pissed me off. But yes, if the little ones sting you, you're kind of screwed. If a big emperor scorpions, trust me, uh, sting you, you're fine. All right, Boy Scout. This is where I start having a problem, though, because not the explanation. What I have a problem with is, you're right, Matt, the stunt work and all the practicality is great in this movie. I'll go ahead and say great. But when we go CGI, starting with these scorpions, I'm not too happy. I don't want real scorpions to go on Shia LaBeouf, although some people might. <laughs> But I have a real problem with introducing all of this. And like in part two, we had the bugs and we had a lot of fake rats last week, but we had the snakes. We're going to get another this notorious critter later on. I think the CGI in this movie for the most part sucks. It does. It's the prequels mm-hmm. 2.0 where not, nothing feels real. Nothing has any weight to it. And it, it looks like people are just digitally imposed in post-production. It doesn't feel like it's actual celluloid that you're watching. And that's a problem because the series prided itself on yeah. practicality because they had to. But now it's like, because they have CGI, I'm sure George was telling Steven, this will make your job a lot easier. Especially because it seems like Spielberg wasn't 100% committed. It's a huge problem with almost all the digital effects in this movie look subpar. I don't have an issue with it here. I do have a huge issue with it in just a little bit. But maybe it's because as we're here and we're getting the reveal of the Crystal Skull, I'm transfixed by that. I love Crystal Skulls. I love the mythology behind it. I was intrigued and interested in these items before this movie. So I love everything about Crystal Skulls and that thing. So to bring something I cared about into this, we get a skull, and I am bought frickin' in. So the scorpions don't bug me, but I think it's lit and shot better than all the CGI we get in just a little bit. I'm starting to realize why you always know what I'm thinking, Adam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they go further into the... <laughs> <laughs> the reason they don't bug him is because they're arachnids, not technically insects. <laughs> they go further into the cave, as Indy tells Mutt not to touch anything. They count the corpses as Indy borrows Mutt's knife and cuts one open to reveal that the corpse was protected by wrappings for 500 years, and this preserved him until actual light hits it and it dissolves. I thought this was actually kind of cool. Yeah, it was a cooler effect of decomposition than we saw in the last You're show. not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I think maybe that's what it was just trying to do. Spielberg's like, look, yeah. look, I could make the shows poorly go yep. better. <laughs> like, it's weird. It doesn't serve a purpose, but it's kind of a cool effect. And maybe it just says something about archaeology that as we reveal these things, we destroy them by finding them out and bringing them to the yep. world. Indy eventually finds Oriala himself. As Indy goes over his legend, Mutt is given the task of holding the corpse, <laughs> <laughs> which is now known as as his career. They go, they go deep. Yeah, I think he left. I think he left his career in that cemetery. <laughs> He's looking for a paper bag to put on the bed right here. <laughs> they go deeper still, and Indy finds an actual crystal skull from Akador. Indy goes over what must have happened with the Indians and how the skull was returned and how he found it, and he wants to know why. But here's good old Mac. He shows back up as more red lines form, another set of travel. Mac talks to Indy, and Indy says as soon as he's let loose, he's going to break Mac's nose. Now, Matt, do you like Mac being, like, you're still liking the writing of him, correct? Yeah, he's fine here. It's, it's only until you get to the end where I'm like, okay, that, that, that's a bit much. Matt goes on about the city of gold and Akador as Sponko shows up and says now she has a mind weapon. And Indy puts together why Oxley put the skull back as he was afraid that Spanko would get her hands on it. Indy doubts this ancient religion Spanko speaks of. Is this, is this the same as Han doubting, you know, that ancient Jedi religion? I guess so. Basically, yeah, because the crystal skulls in this movie operate the same way as the Force, <laughs> where they do whatever the writer w- wants it to do. You fucking hate the Force so much. I do. I, I do. I fucking hate the Force. <laughs> I hate lightsabers. I hate Jedi. <laughs> oh, this pretty... And I just hate, needs a good blaster yeah. by your side, kid. Yeah, and I hate the way telepathy is incorporated into this movie. Like, this, it's... Why can they do? Why can they do this? I know it makes no sense. And uh, God, I, I'll save that for the prequels talk. I have so much to say about the way Lucas explains things. Indy says that there's another explanation as to what's happening, and Matt seems to agree with that. Spanko requests that Indy speak to, i.e., look at the skull. We're getting this odd Williams theme as Indy is looking dead on into the skull, and Spanko talks to him and says how much it'll change him into them. And Spielberg is filming it from, it looks like, the other side of a curtain as they let Jones loose, and Jones does what he said he'd do, which is break Mac's nose. This whole thing with this skull being in front of him, this is when I start having story problems, because we've established that she wants the psychic power but why does she need Indy to do this? Because it does not talk to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Just a line of nonsense to explain what you decided to not flush out. Mm -hmm. Like, if she's got an army of people, wouldn't she make every single person sit there and look at it just in case? It would talk to them. Wouldn't half of her people be just basically turned into Oxley, who I can't believe what they freaking get John Hurt to do in this film, because, man... A just worthless character. It's a damn shame. But this also has no ramifications. Like, it looks like he's being tortured. It looks like he's being hurt, injured, and it plays nothing other than there's a line later that it feels like it's talking to to Indy. But then that's dropped. Like, this holds no significance to the rest of the film. It's, it's, it's worthless, and that's a shame. This isn't in my notes, but I'm kind of piggybacking on what Matt said. What you do here is you have Spanko kill Mac. You have her do something that 
just like really makes Indy doubt her sanity. I mean, she she he only thinks she's insane because of her quote unquote psychic abilities that she thinks she has. But you got to do something here that makes her evil. Absolutely. Or you just kill John Hurt right here instead yeah. of having him do what he does for the rest of the movie, uh, which I think would have been, would have been a better utilization. Mm. And also, we've seen in the previous three movies the villains just treat henchmen like they're stormtroopers and they mean it's nothing. True. So her, just killing off a bunch of them here, it, it make total sense. Where she just says, you know, I've tried this on 20 people and it hasn't worked, so I'm stuck with you. Mm-hmm. And then you would also have some fear for Indiana. You know, as such, I don't think anything's going to happen to him. Exactly. So Indy walks out of the tent and we see that Marion is being held by these Russians. This is also when we hear that Marion is actually Mutt's mom, and Indy is just confused by all that's, this conversation that's taking place. All right, Adam, here's your childhood crush right in front of you 27 years later. How are you feeling seeing Karen Allen back? I feel like my childhood crush became my adulthood <laughs> crush. Like it's, <laughs> I, I love having her back. I think it's a character that actually, at this point, brings some needed just injection into this film. I know people criticize this, that she's basically walking around the rest of this movie with a giant smile on yep, her face. Yep, that was my next note. But you know what? Yep. <laughs> when she's on screen, I got a smile on mine as well. I think it fits what they're trying to do in this film. At least we get a moment of levity with a mom. Mother? Mom? What do you mean, mom? I actually enjoy them together, and I think Harrison Ford and Karen Allen are fantastic when they play off each other. They absolutely still have chemistry, which is the only justification to bring her back. Because <laughs> uh, outside that, she just drives a car and smiles for the rest of the movie. Uh, once once they leave this jungle, that's her role. And you forget, for a movie that has this many characters, only two of them actually matter, which is part of the problem, because the, the, the previous movies, it was always Indiana Jones and one or two other people. It's him and Marion in the first one, and Sala. Second one, it's him, Willie, and Short Round. Third one, it's him, his father, and Brody. This one, it's him, Marion, Mutt, Spalko, Mac... Oxley, they're, they're coming to the point where the characters just become props, where they just walk from scene to scene without actually doing anything. My problem with Karen Allen here is it doesn't feel consistent with the character we saw in Raiders. You know, even when she's yelling at Indy here, scolding Mutt there, I, I think they pulled Karen Allen out of retirement to do this, and she was happy. I mean, she was happy to get this call. She was excited to work on another Indiana Jones film. She was excited to work with Spielberg. She was excited to work with Ford. But that whole quote-unquote smile criticism that you mentioned, Adam, is totally spot on for me. I don't find this to be the same character. And I, I realize why you'd bring her back. Because even Spielberg knew that his wife was the least liked heroine of the entire series. You're not going to put her here. But if you're going to bring her back, at least make her consistent with the character we knew before. I don't find this character to be consistent. She doesn't have any spunk to her like she had before. And again, maybe that's because she's in happy retirement mode. But I don't like her presence here. I do think that Spielberg has missed a boat where we always had... Eh, not always. But we had some strong women throughout this series. And I do think it would have benefited huge from seeing a scene of her standing up to Kate Blanchett's character. You know, maybe having them face off a little bit. Because, yeah, the criticism of she drives a truck and smiles is an absolutely warranted criticism, without a doubt. So, yeah, I do think there should have been something. Just have her throw that punch, you know, that Marion punch at Spalco, I think would have been something that this film could have used. It's also the problem of... This movie now has stopped becoming a serial tribute, and it's now an Indiana Jones movie. That's the problem with introducing his father in the third one. Now you're going to 
you, you're trying to replicate that. Now we have to bring in his ex-lover and his child now to up the ante, which is a, a huge problem I have. I, in principle, I kind of wish they just didn't bring her back at all, and Mutt's mother was just revealed to be a new character. To, to keep the trend, keep consistency, because now it's playing more on movie tropes and cliches mm-hmm. versus being a tribute to, you know, what this series started out as. We get some soap opera banter between Indy and Marion about human wreckage before talking to Oxley, and this makes Indy realize that Oxley has a map, not just directions. They run away and ride into some quicksand, as Indy explains the concept of quicksand to Mutt. It's not quicksand. That's what he says. It's dry, dry sand. sand. Yeah. You see the difference with dry sand is. Mm-hmm. And we're learning that Mutt is actually Indy's kid. And this causes Indy to change his whole mind, his whole idea about being light on him about school. He's like, why aren't you in school? <laughs> Again, Ford's trying here. Oh, he 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 plays this great, especially when he pulls out the yes. snake. But the problem is, it's bad enough that you've done this, but it's just played as just another note exactly. in the movie. Where there's no, there's no weight to it at all. It's just, he's your son. Oh, okay. Mutt's the one who pulls the snake, as you mentioned, Matt, and uses it to help Indy out. We cut to a truck that contains our heroes and more wedding and interesting dialogue that would be much better in a soap opera takes place. Thank God these actors are delivering it, because otherwise, man, I don't know if I'd be able to take it. No, you, you you get the Russian character in the back of the truck doing the Garrett. Oh, shut up already. <laughs> I don't do that. At- it's Soviet Russia. Scripts right you. <laughs> and they use this dialogue to distract the guards and get out of their shackles. Indy says that while he did have many women around the world, they all had the same problem. They weren't you. Talking to Marion. But I still Aww. fucked him in. I still fucked him exactly. in. <laughs> We move on to another notorious scene in this movie, a truck chase. <sighs> this has a little of the mind chase from Temple of Doom going for it, and Spielberg did come up with the idea of Mutt and Spanko fighting between trucks. This chase, though, it just doesn't look good. They have an overhead shot, and it literally looks like models just being rotated around a track. It looks bad. I gotta say, and I don't like saying that about an indie film. I like talking about the stunts. I like talking about the good mat work. I like talking about all that. We're not seeing any of that in this last half of the film. This scene, I think, purposely encapsulates so many people's issue with the film. And I think this portion detracts from the other two hours of the film. It seems like they were, because this thing's only, I think, 205. Mm-hmm. It seems like they were just scared to put out an indie movie that was a buck 45. Because this thing... Not only does it look bad, not only is the action bad, not only is it shot bad, but it goes on four times longer than it needs to. And it gets stupider the longer that it goes on. Were they having a drink? Were, did we go back to Raiders? Were we having a drinking contest while we were writing this part and just trying to figure out how stupid we could get? Because it just gets worse the longer that it goes. And holy hell, when I think of my problems with the film, this scene is it and it that it is such a long scene i think is emblematic of the failure of it if you digitally imposed c3po and r2d2 i would think this is the sequence where they're escaping the droid factory and attacking the clones it's that level of just Mm, mm -hmm. lack of reality physics be damned and and there's no story advancement in this scene because they still have the skull it's not like she gets it and gets away and they have to go fight it back it's filler which 
none of the action scenes in the previous movies really feel like that, where we're just wasting time, and you combine it with the fact that it looks like crap. It's kind of shocking, and it makes me wish, I'm like, this movie might as well be The Adventures of Tintin, where it's animated. Mm-hmm. The fact that he can sense, you know, we learn that it kind of, it seems like there's a big thing that we missed over that he was a learned kid until he decided not to be. Like, I know there's a quick drop line, but that he's fencing, you know, and he can go and hold his own against Falco, and even Marion is, like, calling out specific fencing terms. I cannot believe that nobody stopped and went, hey, do we really need to do all this? You know, this is one of the things that, between writing, storyboarding, prep work, and finalization, nobody thought that this should have been cut down, or nobody had the balls to say it. I even said last week that Spielberg did a lot of storyboarding for the first time on Last Crusade during the truck chase because he knew he wanted that to be the final yet great scene of that film and this franchise at that time. I don't think there was any prep work done here. I think they were all just moving along. They had the script that they wanted. I don't think they were creating like they did in the first two. That was my big complaint last week. We're just going through the motions. And that is the worst thing I can say about an Indiana Jones film, is that they're going through the motions. And who has the hard-on for Tarzan? Okay, let's get there. So let's get to what Mutt's doing during during this entire thing. After the fencing contest, Mutt is taken away from the trucks. He eventually gets caught in some vines. And in another notorious part of this film, ends up making friends with and swinging with some monkeys. What? The chase continues atop a massive mountain cliff. Again, with some shots that the less said about the better. Mutt brings the monkeys with him, and they help out a bit by taking out a few Russians themselves. What the fuck is this? I, I would have rather had more chilled monkey brains <laughs> than this monkey sequence. This is so stupid. This is ridiculous. Wow. You might as well have done fucking Gungans. Yeah. That it looks as bad as it it does on top of how stupid it is. It's just compounding errors here. They all crash, and in yet another notorious set of scenes of this film, a fight occurs around a bunch of red ants. Now, one of... The scripts turned in was by David Kep, and the, the title of it, I believe, was Indiana Jones and the Atomic Ants or something like that. Like some stupid, stupid title. <laughs> I think he had a... Which George Lucas also confirmed. Like, he talks about that in the mm-hmm. making of where it's like he said, I wanted to do, like, them from the yeah. 50s, which is giant mm-hmm. ants. I think he had a hard-on for these things, so we're including these. We get some punches, and Indy's trying his best, but he's getting pummeled. And the CGI ants apparently know that Indy needs help. They gather around, and when the thug is knocked down, these CGI monstrosities attack him and are scurried away by whatever the fuck is in this skull. This is fucking stupid, too. I I hated seeing these CGI ants around this guy. Again, practicals. Like, nothing feels real here. I mentioned during Return of the Jedi, Lucas said, I don't understand why people hate that we're going digital with these things. It's not like you believe that there's a real giant slug. No, but we like to feel like we're in reality. I don't feel like I'm in reality here. This is just bad. Bad, bad, bad. It's also shot from far away when the guy's being Mm -hmm. devoured, so it doesn't have any staying power. This was their, I guess compromise to do like donovan disintegrating or the heart being ripped out or the the face melting like this was meant to be the big hallmark you know nightmare fuel scene but the fact that it's shot from far away and the ants don't look real whatsoever i don't even think they used actual Mm -hmm. ants as a reference from here on out the movie was handed to the visual effects team and they dropped it like a greased watermelon this is where i think spielberg checked out and lucas pulled a jedi mind trick and took over and directed the rest of the Mm. movie oh boy you know the 
The sad thing is, too, is the the punching that's going on with Indy and not Roach. Uh, <laughs> they're sitting there, you know, doing it. That, at least, them going back and forth feels like a classic Indy just slugging match. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't have an issue with that. I think I think the sound is good. But unless you're paying attention to Oxley, like, waving the crystal skull behind him, like, you don't understand why the ants are creating, like, a mm-hmm. ring <laughs> for them to fight in. So that you take a classic moment of just this punching back and forth, which we've seen in so many indie scenes and works well with the sound effects and such, to end with the just horrific, and I mean that in a bad way, not that I'm feeling horrified other than the effects work, just the bad scene of the ants and them pulling him into the ant mount. Like, I was expecting a burp or a fart to come out of that mount. <laughs> That's how stupid and silly it is at the end. Like for the <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's, oh, man. It's amazing that George Lucas has so many hard-ons. I'm surprised he could still ignite his lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> they go flying off the cliff, and oh, my God, what a terrible CGI shot of this car hitting a tree and then getting out of it before falling into the water below. Again, this is all by the motion stuff. Yeah, the motions are point-click Yep. Paste. It's nothing that is, you know, so far beyond what we've seen in previous movies, especially, like, you know, the inflatable raft and things like that, but... It feels like such a lower level because of the lead-up to it and because of how it looks. It's goofy, mm-hmm. you know, and Indy, as much as it's had fun, has never been goofy. They don't take TLC's advice as they hit a few waterfalls. Oh, God <laughs> damn you. We just did Transformers. You, forgot, you know this movie did come out in the 90s, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know, but we just did Transformers, so that was on my mind as I was watching this last night. Well, there's no scrubs to do effects. <laughs> before making their way out and going to land. But Mutt says that through eyes and tears, they need to return the skull to its resting place. And my God, do I hate just he- seeing Harrison Ford just casually hold this skull. Like you said, Matt, there's no real backstory going on. But we don't know exactly what these skulls are doing, but here's Her- here's Indy just holding it casually as they're walking through here. <laughs> Indiana Jones also doesn't know what he's doing. They're just following the crazy exactly. old man. Like, Indiana Jones yeah. does not feel like he's ever in control from the moment they get captured. Mm-hmm. And it's just, why did you get John Hurt just to act? He's not even acting crazy. He's acting... I, I Pulled know, by another like force. Like, it just feels different. Yeah. yeah. But not in a good no. way. You know, you don't feel like he's been affected. You, it, it, It's a shame for somebody who could have been a really good mm-hmm. kid. They go inside the cave, and Indy starts reading the walls before getting from Oxley that someone came for the book. Indy sees that it takes 13 people to unlock the skull's power. Oxley starts showing... Which I thought, was a, I thought that was a uh, Christian reference. I did, too. Jesus and the 12 disciples. I'm like, so are they going to say that they were all aliens and really piss off the Catholics? That's what I got out of it. I looked at that. I looked at the round table because of how stuff comes up. Like, I, I saw a lot of symbolism with what they were doing here, which I don't mind. Once we get in here and this stuff starts going on, I'm back into the mythology and the lore of these crystal skulls. I'm feeling like Tom Cruise did it once over on the script, and we're talking about Scientology here. <laughs> Oxy starts showing them the way out before they get spotted by more Islanders, and they make a run for it. And here's where the racism is once again full tilt. Yeah, we, we got fucking tribal yep. savages. They, it's, it's bad enough that Pirates 2 did this mm-hmm. two years prior. Yeah. Busting out of, like, these cocoons that are just in the walls and ceilings and... I do like the shot of them exiting this temple and getting attacked, though. I think that's a rather cool shot. I think there's some good blocking going on here. No, it's shot well enough. Mm -hmm. Better than the CGI monstrosities we got just a few minutes prior. For sure. Absolutely for sure. But it feels like they 
did not give Spielberg the set room they needed to build a decent sized mm. set, and that's a shame. Everyone is calling each other's name as Oxley holds the skull up and freezes them in their tracks. They make their way up to the top of the temple, and they start the process of forming the actual temple itself before they fall and are caught on a weird runaround where steps are disappearing, and Oxley drops the skull. This is National Treasure This two. is ridiculous. <laughs> this movie has turned into. This is cri- This is what I mean by this. the last half of this feels like a video game. I feel like I'm playing Tomb Raider here instead of watching Indiana Jones. It's ridiculous because they're going up, then they're going down, then they're going... Like, there's no real end game here. Like, we knew where the temple was in Temple of Doom. We knew what, where everything was. We knew where they were going in Last Crusade. We certainly knew the Well of Souls in Raiders of the Lost Ark. What is the point of going round and round and circles here to go nowhere well inst- and then instead of providing answers they just hold up the crystal yeah. skull to advance to the next plot mm-hmm. point and about to kiss marion when mutt proves to be the cock block of the film and jumps up out of the water with skull in hand <laughs> they go into the deepest part of the temple where the skull opens another pathway and they end up where the ritual takes place mac once again turns on jones and indy's like what are you a triple agent Mm-hmm. Ray Winstone should have said, I don't know, I need to the next draft. Well, according to Winstone, this was his idea. He wanted to bring something different to this, and it just doesn't make any sense. They should have fleshed it out a little bit. Well, they also telegraphed this because he's leaving the little uh, trackers. Exactly, yeah. Meanwhile, Spanko is about to receive all the power. The skull is put in place, and all 13 of the skulls and aliens are set to tell Spanko everything they know. She says she wants to know everything, and Indy just stands back and is like, I've got a real bad feeling about this. Nice little Star Wars call back there. <laughs> Oh, God. I love the look. I do, too, actually. I'm with Adam on that. I think they have a real good look. I think they look like we're going to talk about aliens like this when we get to Attack of the Clones. I like those aliens, too. If you're going to have Spielberg go back to aliens, we they kind of look close encounterish as well. And they look angry. I love when she, ta- when she wants the power and they show the aliens. Their faces are pissed. They're like, what the fuck are you doing? And then she gets what she gets. But, yeah, I like the look of the aliens, too. I'll be that guy. I fucking hate these designs because they're counterintuitive to what the movie should be. If you're making a movie that is a homage to the 1950s serials, design aliens that look like the ones you would get from that time period, not modern-day movie aliens. Mm. I don't think they look that great either. And there's no excuse. We had Davy Jones around this time. We had the Transformers that looked as good as they could possibly look. Two weeks later, we'd have the Hulk, which, yeah, I know it's fucking fake because there's no way to make him look real, but he looks more convincing than these aliens. I, I think this is, in my opinion, this is this is dog shit, and this is where the movie has already lost me at this point. Mm. And I hate saying that because I I was with it for the first third. Like I really yeah did. yeah I think we I think we all were. Spanko requests full knowledge, and she ends up dying in a way that is not as bad as last week, but still is pretty bad. Probably second worst of the series. Which again, as of this recording, I still haven't seen the new one. But I find this death uninspired. Does she even yeah. die, or does she just get teleported to another dimension? Yeah, she lights up. As far as I know, she can come back for all we know. Mm. Yeah, and, and uh, you notice when her eyes go glow, you hear the sound of a lightsaber ignite. Yeah, I noticed that. Which, again, also made me curious, because I, <laughs> not only do I hate lightsabers, I hate when lightsabers show up and stuff when they're not lightsabers. <laughs> like, like, again, why does this movie have so many Star Wars references? Because of the people behind it. I mean, Spielberg put, Spielberg well, put a Star Wars... Spielberg out. put a... The person, the person behind it, not the people. Well, Spielberg put a Star Wars sound effect behind Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, in the beginning of that, we heard a Star Wars effect. I was also back with Star Wars before it was beaten into the ground <laughs> like these rocks. Oh, that was actually pretty, pretty cool. But that, oh my god, I hate the last thirty mm. minutes of this movie. 
We see Matt get sucked into the abyss, so no more of him. They fucking stole this from the Brendan Fraser mummy. Uh, Indy and the crew are now being flooded with water, which actually helps them escape the temple. They see the temple just collapse on itself, and aliens fly out of it. What? You know what this is? And Matt, you might attest to this because you were more of a fan than Adam was, but this is like an X-Files ending. We're seeing aliens escape here, and we're seeing Ford look at it. It, it, it just reminded me of Mulder looking at aliens escape in X-Files and Scully not being able to see a thing. I half expected Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones to show up. <laughs> uh, and honestly, that might have been more befitting than some of the components of this movie. Mm. The problem is not that they're aliens. That, that's not my issue. My issue is that if you're going to make them aliens, just go all the way. Don't try to soften the blow by having them be just interdimensional mm-hmm. travelers. Yeah, they want their cake and eat it, and eat it too. Yeah, based on George Lucas, it looks like he's <laughs> Indy asks where they went as he puts together that their treasure wasn't gold, but knowledge. We then hear Indy call Mutt Jr., and then says, somewhere, your grandpa is laughing. I actually laughed at that line. I liked it. I laughed at that line. When they're sitting there and he does it, yeah, somewhere your grandpa's mm-hmm. laughing. That, that made me smile. We cut to Jones getting a job as an associate dean. And then... Well, oh, it, he's just getting, reinst- he's getting reinstated at a reinstated, promotion. Yeah. And then we get to something I was not expecting in this movie. A wedding. The credits? <laughs> now, I had no idea of this scene, and honestly, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I was happy with them being loving adversaries, which, from what I hear, marriage is anyway. Right, guys? Um, I'll know soon enough. But if I wasn't impressed with this scene, we cut to the fedora flying into frame, and Mutt reached for it. Now, this has been built up as a passing of the torch of some sort, and I remember press leading up to this saying that Shia is here to kind of grab the torch as, as Harrison Ford is getting older, and we're going to go with someone else for the rest of this. But as Shia starts to put the hat on, it's like Spielberg and Lucas themselves were like, no, kid, that's not yours. And Ford comes and puts <laughs> the hat on himself. I like this. I thought this was a nice little cap off. Adam, what about you? I think the scariest part of this entire franchise was watching Shia reach for that fedora. <laughs> <laughs> Every audience freaking around the world looked like that Jack Nicholson meme of, oh, <laughs> the wedding doesn't bug me, I, but I think what they're trying to do is cap the finale that they did last time. If they're riding off to the sunset, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. So it, it makes sense that way. But thank God they did not let Mutt do it. It is so on the nose, but at least Harrison Ford being almost like giving a wink to fuck you, kid, yeah. <laughs> you know, is how it feels, and I feel the same way. So thank God he doesn't grab it. But yeah, sure, it's a nice, it's it's a fine little chuckle at the end. I, I find it hard to believe that Spielberg filmed it. Maybe somebody else was just like, yeah, we're we're taking Shia away from you, Beard. <laughs> You're done with this kid. I like that it's also them saying Indiana Jones will always be Harrison mm-hmm. Ford. That's how I read this as well, which is why I never bought into theories of him being recast by like Chris Pratt or anyone else. It's a it's a decent way to end the movie. I I can't wait for the for the opening of the fifth one to be that she died. Because I guarantee you that's going to that's gonna explain why he looks so crotchety in the fifth one. And then Poochie Shia went off to his home planet, never to be seen again. Yeah, and I, and I think it's just the presence of a new damsel in it, too. I, we're going to talk about that at the end of this, but yeah, I don't know how they're going to explain that. But until we get there, that's when credits roll on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, boy. Scale of 1 to 10. What do we give Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. 
this was a movie hugely anticipatory for me, not only for me, but for Laura. You know, we watched it together at the journeyman. I think I'm definitely the biggest indie fan in, in the house, but it was looking forward to it quite a bit. Everything about Indiana Jones has always been fun for me, from games to rides to just the character. So I was definitely down to come back and to see what adventure they would have in store. Is it Raiders of the Lost Ark? No. Is it Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? No. But is it Temple of Doom for me? And that's kind of where this has always been. And depending on my mood is how I put this and rank this one in into it. So I think of that from a score-wise. The potential, I think, was squandered here, though. I think the story on surface is done well. I love the mythology of Crystal Skulls in, in our real lives and that it's still an untapped mystery that we don't know about. And that way, I think there's a lot that could be done. I don't mind. To me, they're aliens. I hate that they use the term interdimensional beings, because to me, these are aliens. And I think bringing Spielberg in to have that tie-in to Close Encounters, I think is pretty dang cool. But there's so much bad will that's done in this film that undermines it, between the abysmal CG and action that's done in the middle third of this film, to everything, 90% of, of having to do with Shia LaBeouf. The utter wasting of John Hurt, who is such a good, fun character actor, really puts a damper on this film. I mean, even Jim Broadbent, to bring him in and just undevelop what that should have been is is a shame. So story-wise was good, but script-wise really, really was lacking. And that's a shame. I mean, even Kate Blanchett, to bring somebody of her caliber in and to leave it underwritten and underutilized is a shame. It's not a film I hate to watch. Halfway through, you kind of got to change your expectation of what the film is because it changes from an Indiana Jones film to a Star Wars prequel, you know, in in tone and visual effects. But I think for the first time, I'm going to say that up till this point, I think it's I don't know if it's going to be my least favorite, but I think I can admit that it's the least the least deserving of score in the way that I put them. So I'm going to put this at a six and a half. I don't mind this film. I think there is a lot of good in it. I think there's a lot of good acting in it. And I'm always happy to see Indy and Marion back together. I do love seeing Karen Allen back in this film. And I know I'm one of the five, including herself and her agent (laughs) that do, but this is a film I'm happy to watch. It's just, yeah, it is still down the ranking of indie films for me, but I'm good as six and a half on this one. Six and a half from Adam Bunch. Matt, as the one who this was your very first theatrical Indiana Jones experience, how are you going to rank it, sir? Not as well as I would have 15 years ago. But having said that, and I've been critical of this movie almost as much as Adam has, I don't have the vitriol for it, though, to this day that so many others do. It's got massive problems. It takes a dive after what I consider to be a very strong opening third. First 40 minutes of this movie, I was sitting there watching it today going, you know, I'm kind of loving this. But there's that point where they get captured that the film just takes a nosedive for me. It becomes all CGI. The escapism is there only because it's a fantastical summer blockbuster, not because it's Indiana Jones. And I think you're starting to see that this was a movie that was pieced together from 20 years of development hell and push me, pull you, will they or won't they. But for all its problems, I watched it. And I got to say, a lot of my goodwill that I do have comes from Harrison Ford bringing his A-game, which is a surprise, especially looking at him nowadays. I do have issues with how 
it ends, and I think I've said that pretty clear. And I have my issues with the the lack of answers for things that are spent a considerable amount of time on, like the Crystal Skulls, still not knowing exactly what they're capable of for something that it's named after is a huge problem. Having said that, this is a distant third in my Indiana Jones rankings. I do like this movie more than Temple of Doom, but maybe by half a step. So I'm going to land on a 6 on 10. It's okay. I can get through it. But there's a part of me that thinks this could have been so much better if they really waited another six months to really iron this out, flesh out the details, add some cohesion so it doesn't feel like it's such a stark drop-off the moment they leave the USA. Man, for the build-up Adam did last week, I'm pretty much in perfect step with both you guys. I'm with Matt where I put this on last night. It was right before I went to bed. It was late. I sat and I turned this fucker on and I was having a blast for the first half of it. I'm like, you know what? I'm having a good time here. Even all the Shia stuff, even all of that. I had no criticisms for the first third, maybe half of this movie. But Matt, you're absolutely right. Once they get captured, this movie, much like it does off that cliff into the water, just takes a dive. I had no issues with Nuke the Fridge. I had no issues with any of the buildup. But the payoff and the end of this movie, and Adam, you hit on this during the review, it feels more like a Lucas vision that is unfulfilling. My main issue with the two, I don't think there's any real passion put into this. I think this kind of felt like everybody kind of getting together, sitting around, maybe, you know, knowing Harrison Ford, he likes to smoke the doobies. Maybe they had a few doobies around the campfire, and they're like, okay, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And here comes David Kep to flesh everything out after dozens of scripts are submitted. And I, I feel why people... People hate this movie. However, I don't hate this movie. I have a decent enough time with it. I think some of the rapport is good, even if Karen Allen isn't really the same character I recognized from 27 years before. And Ford is the main reason to see this, because I think he really comes back as this character. And as a spoiler, he comes back as a character from the similar era. And we're going to review that film. And it is nowhere near with the passion that he brings to this role. I had a really good time with the first half, but... I was taking my notes for the plot and everything and all these effects and all of these just bad decisions towards the end really, really dampened my score. I was up in the seven and a half, eight range for the first half of this movie and then it just goes down and it went down too. I'm at a six as well. I just think there's enough fun to be had. It's not as notorious as people make it out to be, but you're going to come out probably angry like we were in that everything just does not gel. And um, it's a shame that everybody came back and came up with a movie that ends like this. But at the same time, it's not a bad time. But is next week's movie going to be a bad time? Now, Matt, last week I ended the podcast saying I have a fear. And I want to mention that fear right now. This reminds me a lot of when the three of us did Harry Potter. And Matt, you came into that series loving the series, you grew up with it, and you didn't feel like there was much that they could do that could anger you or make you have a sour taste in your mouth about that series. And that final podcast is depressing to hear you be so angry at that movie after so many movies that you grew up with and built your whole life on went as well as they did. I grew up with the series. I love the series. I am hearing, Advanced Buzz, that this is not the best movie of the series. I'm hearing it's not even in the top fourth of this series. I'm hearing it's the least of the series. I'm hearing a whole bunch of things about this. I don't care. I'm going with as open a mind as possible. Me and Jen already have our tickets. We're going to be there. I'm going to avoid all internet usage 
until we go see it. But my anticipation is I want to come out of that podcast just as sad as you were, Matt, at the end of Harry Potter. What are you feeling going into Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? So I am in a very strange place where I said for the longest of time, because this movie was in development almost as long as Crystal Skull was, that there's not much they could do to really sell me on this, because Harrison Ford is significantly older now. You know, he's 80. And I did Disney getting their tentacles on it just... It, this felt like a, a product, not a movie. Spielberg leaving was also something that gave me cause for concern. Not because I worship him, but whenever someone does a series... I kind of want to see them play it out to the end, unless they do something so bad that they have to be kicked off the project. Having said that, I still was not excited until I saw the trailer. And I'm going to be honest, the trailer got me excited the first time I saw it. The 20 times I've seen it since then, at every goddamn movie I go to see in a multiplex, I get less and less excited. The word of mouth, yeah, this thing kind of got dogpiled when it was first shown. I do think it's been a little bit exaggerated just because I did look at Rotten Tomatoes out of curiosity. You know, it's not in the teens like you would expect. So I don't know if this movie is going to be nostalgia porn like some of the other Disney-associated franchises that they've done. Is it going to play it too safe? Or is the reason people don't like it as much because they did something radically different? Because God knows we saw that with Star Wars. (laughs) So I have no idea. But I'm cautiously optimistic because I want to see Harrison Ford always do well because he he showed up to play for Crystal Skull, and I hope he did the same thing for this one. Yes, the person who directed this directed Logan, but I don't want to see Logan with Indiana Jones. So I'll leave it at that. All right, Adam. You, like me, grew up with this series. What are you expecting when we see and review a brand new Indiana Jones film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? It's weird. See, unlike Matt, there's not been a trailer that has gotten me excited for this whatsoever. I'm hopeful, but I am kind of nervous. Boyd Holbrook, I don't know what he's doing and bringing into it, and the little bit I've seen him on trailers, I don't care. Mads Mikkelsen can go both ways as a villain for me, (laughs) so I don't know, know how to feel about that. I don't understand the MacGuffin. I mean, the writers have done some good movies between things like Birthday Girl, which I think is hugely underrated, and Edge of Tomorrow. But you know what? They also wrote Spectre. <laughs> so, oh, oh, did they? Oh, no. So, oh, no. I didn't know that. So, yeah, so I don't know how I feel about, you know, but they wrote Ford versus Ferrari, tying it back to James Mangold. And I don't think Mangold has made a bad movie yet. You know, I think he's made some very underrated gems going all the way back to Copland, which has probably got about the same score this does, but I adore that film. So I kind of like when the general consensus is very subdued, because when I can go in with a subdued attitude and be surprised, I think it helps the film. I'm hopeful. I have no idea what Phoebe Waller-Briggs is going to bring, but God knows they're laying this on her shoulders. But we'll see. I have expectations for what I think certain characters are and where this goes and I hope it can subvert me do something different while still bringing just a pure adventure you know excitement but it's Disney indie and that scares me as much as anything because Disney's not been hitting uh, home runs lately and we'll see and you know I'm going to be there this weekend, haven't decided what showing I'm going to. IMAX and Dolby have let me down so much, I think I'm going to go to a cheaper screen. <laughs> For once, this is Indiana Jones. But I'm hopeful, 
Um, but my expectations are much like the score is kind of middling. You're saying you like Night and Day? No. Okay. Yeah, no, so did yes, he, he did that day. one. Yes, he did. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. And, no, no, and no, Kate no. and Leopold. Everybody gets a everybody gets a mulligan. Kate and Leopold at least had uh, Hugh Jackman in it. And I've never seen Ford versus Ferrari, but I am one. You, you would like. I, I I get that feeling, but I wasn't a huge fan of Logan, as I discussed on that podcast. So no, but you liked the Wolverine. I did. A lot. I did. And I'd say his 310 to Yuma remake is fucking awesome. Another one I haven't seen. I, I, let me ask you to watch that beforehand because I'm curious to see if any of that is going to influence this with how he shoots the action. Okay, I will do that. I have made <laughs> I, notes. I will say he is the most exciting part of the future DCU for me and what he's going to do. So, Well, assuming he sticks on it doesn't get fired <laughs> like everybody, like everybody else. else. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I don't think he's the kind of person James Gunn would get along mm-hmm. with, but also, not to go on the sidebar, James Mangold is fucking pissed that Hugh Jackman is coming back as Wolverine. As he should be. Yeah, he is not he happy about he it. He took a huge pot shot at the premiere that made me yep. laugh so hard. And Matt Mickelson, is he just making it a point to be a villain in every major <laughs> franchise out there? Well, he's, like, for God's sakes, he's got Marvel, he's got Harry Potter, he's got mm. this, he's got Bond, he's got Hannibal Lecter. The only thing he wasn't a villain in is Star Wars, but he checks that box Mm -hmm. now. And that's the one thing in this trailer. I'm like, this is just calling it typecasting is an understatement with him and Boyd Holbrook. Yeah. Technically, he made the Death Star. So, yeah, I'll call him a villain. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to add all those pieces up when we review a brand new indie movie. I know these are coming out. Uh, Dial of Destiny review will probably be coming out a couple weeks after that movie has been released. At the time we're recording this, it's only a couple days before the film is released. I apologize for that, but I want to go hard on these freaking edits, and we're gonna I want to get these out as soon as I can, so just kind of be patient with that. Plus, we have so many other things coming out. As me and Matt mentioned, we have Mission Impossible. Uh, we have a ton of King reviews. We have more Star Wars. We have more Superman. Lots to say about Superman, as that th- there's th- things coming out about that new release that we're going to talk about, that one coming up. Oppenheimer, the Barbie uh, yeah. movie. I mean, it's a big summer. B- Barbie movie, I know. We're not reviewing Barbie, though, unless, <laughs> unless it gets, like, amazing reviews. Yeah, we're not let's do the Mattel line. We could tie that in with G.I. Joe, technically. Yeah, we could. We could. All right. So until <laughs> next week, when we review brand new Indiana Jones film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, we're podcasters. Part-time. Part-time. <laughs> See you guys next week. Again, Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. What a fitting end to your life's pursuits. You're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Well, you made it. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Careful, you might get exactly what you wish for. I wonder sometimes, monsieur, if you have that clearly in mind. And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net 
or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. I should say you look rather lost, but then I cannot imagine where in the world the three of you would look at home. There's nothing you have that I could possibly want. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Well, I thought archaeologists were always funny little men searching for their mommies. Mommies. Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. There may be hundreds of skulls at Agator. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known. Edited by Garrett. Voiceovers by Adam. You're my best friend. Give me your hat. Why? Because I'm going to puke in it. Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Indy, Henry, follow me! I know the way! Ha! Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh-huh. But I do think this had an an, an unenvi, unenviable um, task. They want to go see this movie. And I think that's something about this franchise and this character, is it has spanned generations. Matt, anything to add? No, I, I think I'm, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to get in the fridge myself. All right. With the following hour and a half conversation we're going to have. <laughs> She's a good presence because she's a good actor, but just solely and sorely underutilized for what she could have brought to it. You, you talk about crushing on Kate Blanchett. A few years ago, I got to go to the Oscars, and I actually got to sit across the table from her.
at an Oscar party. And I never, ever posted about my dealings out there because, to me, it was just there was so much going on that I just didn't want to even mess anything up because I was kind of living a dream out there. But the one thing I did post was when I went to this Oscar party, I said, I got to drink with Kate Blanchett. And, man, she's got a presence. She is just as sexy on screen as she is, off screen as she is on, i got to tell you. She's, she's an amazing person, too. Just fun, fun, fun to talk to. So that was a big highlight of my life, was getting to sit across from Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Nuke in the Fridge has never been one of my bones of contention with this movie. But what, was it one of your skulls? of contention. Never mind. We see a painting of Donovan on a wall as this conversation is going on, so we get... You say Donovan, you mean Marcus. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. (laughs) My bad. We see a painting of Marcus on the wall as this conversation is going on. It's weird because the actor is named Donovan. That's why I kind of get confused there. And in Shia's defense, there is an archetype and a role he had played that was the better version of this, his character in Constantine. Ooh. Because he plays, oh, yeah. he plays Keanu's yeah. apprentice. And he's actually really good. I, yeah, um, he plays so, Chaz. No, nothing like the character, but he does well in it. No, but that movie is nothing like the character because <laughs> they, they cast Keanu Reeves. <laughs> good point. That's one of my problems with David Kep as a writer. He's never been very good at giving you all the key details as far as potential. I have this problem a bit with Jurassic Park. I have this problem with Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie, where it's just everything is overly simplified. It, it can do whatever the plot needs it to. Hell, he did this with, um, oh, what was that Johnny Depp? What was that Johnny Depp? No, that Kevin Bacon movie, that ghost movie. Stir of Echoes. Oh, Stir of yeah. Stir of Echoes. That movie makes no goddamn sense. Uh, my final line is going to involve you guys, too. You're going to know exactly what to say when I end my piece, okay? So you guys are both going to say it in sync. Ready? Uh, you're giving us a lot of credit. <laughs> so until next week, when we review brand new Indiana Jones film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, we're podcasters. Part-time, guys. Oh, oh yeah. shit. I had no idea yeah. where you were going. <laughs> like I said, you <laughs> credit. Yep. Go ahead. All right, go again. One, two, three, go. Part time. Part time. <laughs> See you guys next week. All right. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs>